You're listening to Money and Meaning, Unlikely Allies, Building New Markets for Impact, with your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. Check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. Let's join the conversation. Welcome back to Money and Meaning. I'm your host, Alex Kravitz. I'm really excited to bring you today's episode, a recording from the opening plenary of our recent SOCAP 365 Pacific Northwest event we held at the Impact Hub in Seattle. The day featured great discussions on a range of topics from sustainable fisheries to opportunity zones, but this particular discussion on closing the racial wealth gap had such an overwhelmingly positive response that we couldn't wait to bring it to you as a podcast. The tremendous inequality in wealth distribution has ripples that extend into so many of the other important topics that we talk about, from food systems to to healthcare to indigenous rights. As one of our panelists notes, the work is intersectional, it's complex, it's structural, but it's not intractable. In this note of hopeful urgency was a really powerful way for us to frame the day's discussions. Our panelists today are Stephen Green, the founder of Pitch Black, Lisa Yancey, the co-founder of The Wee's Match, and Sayer Jones, the director of mission-related investing for Meyer Memorial Trust. Enjoy the conversation. I'm uh, Sayer Jones. I work as a, I work a foundation in Portland, Oregon, um, Meyer Memorial Trust. Uh, we wanted to do some short introductions, and then we'll uh, begin this conversation. We also wanted to reserve for a fair amount of time for Q&A, so we'll get to that uh, relatively quickly. So um, just as a bit of background, I'm the Director of Mission-Related Investing for the Meyer Memorial Trust. We're about a $750 million foundation out of Portland. Uh, my specific job is to find ways to um, repatriate dollars from the global financial system, put them to work back in Oregon. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Lisa Yancey. I am one of the co-founders of the Weez Match. Um, the Weeds Match is a company in development where we're focusing on building the scale, wealth, and self-care of black women entrepreneurs. Uh, for the past 20 years, I've been doing strategy work, uh, primarily with philanthropy and nonprofit organizations, focused on social justice, media justice, public space, and tech and media policy. I'm excited to be here in conversation with you, um, talking about closing as a gerund, <laughs> which means it's going to be in process the racial wealth gap, and to connect that conversation about the racial wealth gap with lots of conversations that are happening around racial equity lens, racial equity lens investing in philanthropy, racial equity lens policy making, racial equity lens, and understanding about community development. So I'm excited to be here today with my colleagues. I'm Stephen Green. Uh, I am the CEO for Pencil Design Academy, the world's only footwear design school located in Portland, Oregon. Uh, I'm also a recovering banker and VC, uh, so pretty good with spreadsheets. Uh, today, I believe the hat that I'm probably wearing the most is uh, I'm a founder of an organization called Pitch Black, and we go around the country uh, connecting ecosystems with their amazing black entrepreneurs. Uh, we've actually done it four times in Portland, twice in Seattle, once in this room of those two times. Uh, we've had folks in Philadelphia and then three times in Austin, and then we're doing six more cities this year. Uh, so far in Portland, we've had 38 people pitch in the last four years. 
and they've gone on to raise over $35 million for their businesses. Excited to be here. So I've been enrolled <laughs> to kick us off. Um, you know, so very often there are mixed feelings when coming to a conversation that has racial anything in it, like racial period pause. <laughs> and so what I'd like to offer in this conversation is for us to understand a frame that I'd like to propose that came from the Iroquois Confederate uh, philosophy of seventh generation. And it, I was thinking of that before we had this honoring of the lands moment. But when you think about seven generations and you think about impact, right, we're not talking about output, we're not talking about deliverable, we're talking about a change that happens over time that sustains and becomes the new normal, the new reality. The Iroquois Confederate advanced this notion of seventh generation that when you're thinking about what's happening today, how will that impact the descendants seven generations from now? And it was interesting, I, I do a lot of reading, and in one book I'm reading um, that talks about the black banks and color wealth gap, there was a notice of, in 1863, when emancipation was actually enacted, the black um, wealth, so not in comparison to white, but the black wealth was 0.5%. Here we are over 150 years later, where the black wealth is 1%. So 0.5 after being chattel, legally, to 1% with all the strides. So when we talk about closing and talk about impacting in this gerund of continuity, it's important to understand that it's not just the one thing that will happen overnight. I think we will have tremendous strides if we stay the tide towards the direction where we're headed right, right now. And in thinking about genera seven generations from now, if in 1863 we talked about seven generations from now, and if a generation is on average 20 to 25 years, we'd actually be entering that season of the seventh generation. And in entering this moment of the season of the seventh generation, we can imagine as so results of the work that we will do, that we're continuing to do, that you do in your work, that we do in our lives, that we're committed to, that we stay the tide so that when someone else is sitting on some virtual panel somewhere else that's not on the ground and in something in the sky, that they're not having this exact same conversation and that hopefully they're not talking about a 0.5 degree percentage increase from 150 years from now. And so this is to give a frame that we're going to move it to the tactics. And often we want to get to tell us the one solution, the one thing, that it's a web. And that if you can believe that you're going to commit to the change until it's done, it's something that we hold at the Weeds Match, then that means that you're here today knowing that this is a journey that you will take, that you will tell your children, that your children will take, that they will tell their children that their children will take and they will tell their children. And it's going to take that kind of vested interest for the impact to happen. Um, when we were trying to frame up this um, plenary, we uh, wanted to be really focused on what were people going to take away from it. 
because you can get into the statistics and the statistics um, are not good. They're discouraging. And when you think about the systems that have generated these outputs for populations of people, they're so big and broad. They're pretty much every system that's been designed. The thing that's been hardest for me to understand in critical race theory is this idea that um, you can have an institutional um, output that was not designed by an individual. So it's not an individual's bias or an individual's racism that causes these outcomes. You can actually have a whole system that's actually generating these things. So we wanted to not delve deeply into all of the harm and trauma. We wanted to set a frame, make a case, talk broadly about um, the systems that sort of generate these outcomes for people, and then have, hopefully have you guys come away with um, hopefully a lot of things that you can think about if you actually want to change this, but being realistic about it. Um, there is no root cause out there. Um, this is not one of those things where there's a silver bullet that's going to solve this. This particular problem has been 400 years, thousands of years maybe, in the making. So we aren't going to see this go away in our lifetimes. And so we have to be committed to generations of change in order to see these, um, the trajectory of this particular problem change. But that means we start today because we can't start 10 years ago. Stephen, you want to give a little, uh, maybe some stats? <laughs> and some urgency. Economist with some stats, yeah. Um, I, I think it, it's important to, to follow on what Lisa said about um, work, right? And, and what does that really mean? And, and the work to me is, is, is two different things. One, it's something that's rooted firmly in trust. So I, I work mainly with female founders and founders of color, and trust is, is, is everything. If you don't have trust, it doesn't matter how much money you're, you're willing to, to loan or invest. Um, trust has to be the, the foundation of everything. Uh, and then two, uh, the work is really a commitment to changing the outcomes and the experiences of, of women and people of color uh, um, for me. And, and it's not about my intentions. It's not about getting done. It's about committing to ongoing work of, of changing the outcomes and, and the experiences um, for those populations. So I'm really excited to do that. Uh, I, I think one of the amazing things about the stats for, for Oregon, where, where I live, um, black founders have doubled in the last 10 years. We have over 5,000 black firms uh, in, the, in the state of Oregon. And nationally, black women are the, are the fastest growing segment of, of black founders. Um, but when it comes to investment, uh, black founded firms uh, receive less than 1% of, of equity, and if you talk about black female firms, less than 0.1% um, nationally when it comes to venture capital. Um, so there are some stark numbers, um, but there's an amazing opportunity uh, that we have at our, right now. So in this spirit of like frame and opportunity, right? so we, you know, part of what we were talking about is like, who are these people and what do we want them to take away so that they're not just glazing over and being like, oh my God, racial wealth gap, we'll never be able to fix it. There's nothing we could do, so let's just go drink wine, right? Like, we don't want that. I mean, we can go drink wine, but it can't just be that, right? So there's the larger frame of this is, it's, it's, it's intersectional, it's complex, it's structural, but it's not intractable. So you don't get off, you don't get let off the hook. You have to stay on the hook. And I really do mean a hook, like a fishing hook, because there's a bit of piercing pain in that, right? Like, you can't, if you're, you're not going to have change, you can't change the status quo, feeling status quo comfort. Can't do that, right? So you won't, if you're feeling comfortable and you're like, ooh, I want to 
do something. Let me hire a chief executive equity person or a sustainability officer or hire someone from LGBTQ or hire someone that looks like Lisa. They'll fix everything and we're all, we're okay. No, we have to start with a consciousness. So I want to offer three things. One, I want you to think about leaning into the reality that we are not in a race-neutral society. Okay? It's not real. Come out of that matrix. It does not exist, right? We're not yet race-neutral. So the not being race-neutral, the more you believe we're race-neutral, that everything is better, the less you're going to be aggressive about the urgency of making change happen. The more you're going to lean back like this wonderful almost wound chair, lean back into this being a moment where I can just do incremental things, right? So we're not race neutral. Two, this is not just about you being good or bad or whether you're racist or, no, 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 right? So you can't just be like, oh, well, I'm not racist, so I'm not a part of the problem, and thus I, what I'm doing is good. This is not the binary of good and bad. Good and bad is not enough. And three, just because you feel bad when you see and hear the statistics, your feeling bad is not enough. You can't just feel bad. Like, don't feel bad, don't go crying and making other people have to manage your feeling bad about it and carry that weight. You have to do some, you have to do some major, not incremental change. So when Stephen was just talking about the investment numbers, June, my colleague who's here now, and, and I were doing some research, actually the last time I was here for the storm, but we were meeting anyway, so it worked out. We were doing some research on the, the venture capital investment, what was happening in VCs of 2018. Check this out. 2018 was the, it was the largest amount of mega giving in venture capital since the 2000 dot-com era. There were 184 rounds of 100 million plus investments. We're talking about abundance. But then when we talk about investing and impact in companies that are of color or women or LGBTQ or all of these various things, we're like little numbers. We're like the biggest thing, maybe 100 million. That's amazing. It was a $94 billion year. So in one of our conversations in prepping for this, we need to think about where's the spectrum of how we create access points for these various communities to benefit from your investments. Not just one, not just little, not just incremental, not just the single, but across the board. But you're only going to start thinking in that way if you agree that A, we're not in a racial race neutral society, B, that feeling bad is not enough, See that you're going to have to go in and work cooperatively towards strategies that are profound. You won't have profound change without profound investment. So I don't have much to add to that. I, I'll, I'll make a couple of points. So a lot of my, my work at the trust has been thinking about gaps. Um, Ten years ago in the city of Portland, we had a we had an issue where we had a, a tech company that um, basically got investment from a Silicon Valley company uh, and they had to move. There wasn't enough capital in the state to actually maintain that company there because uh, they were you know, rapidly growing. We didn't have the talent for it. We didn't have the capital for it. Um, the company had to leave. So a lot of the work has been how do we um, address those capital gaps that cause that particular company to leave. 
Um, the same analysis is what I use to apply to outputs. So if I look at, um, uh, there's a statistic about um, how many um, 7A loans were actually um, African-American founders in the city of Portland, or uh, state of Oregon. It's three? There was three last year. Three, yeah. Um, I look at that and I say it's an output. I mean, clearly there's a million reasons why that's the At the end of the day, um, I have to acknowledge that that output is untenable for us. So the way that we would address it is we'd say, well, yeah, we're interested in micro-lending. It would be great to have founders of color uh, start small businesses. But if all they're doing is replacing the job that they had with now a $19,000 a year job um, as a solo entrepreneur, that isn't good enough. So yeah, micro-lending is important but also growth capital. So it's not just about the smallest of the small, like the people literally living under the bridge. Um, it's about like the people who are competent entrepreneurs who are locked out of the capital ecosystem. How do we find those people? How do we scale those businesses up, up that actually hire more people? How do we engage with them? How do we surround them with the resources that they need? Because I'm gonna acknowledge that um, you know, it's, it's distinctly different if you are from generational wealth and at the country club, you can always hit up your uncle, who is a lawyer, and uh, get the technical services needed to help scale up your business. That is, that access is not that social capital, that political capital that a lot of entrepreneurs are bringing on the table when they start their companies is just not accessed by the communities that we're trying to serve at the trust. So I want to acknowledge that and recognize that it's never going to be good enough for us to just help the micro lenders or help the growth capital. We have to build the trust. We have to build the intentional connections between things, and we can't be satisfied uh, by just deploying our money and then coming back 10 years to see how it worked. We have to continuously be challenging ourselves to do better, which, I mean, I'll be frank about it. It makes you miserable because uh, for every dollar that I can get out the door, there's $100 million worth of need. So I, um, it's discouraging to see this, but if I'm taking a very long-term approach to it, I know that this is gonna be my career, and so for as many years as I'm working, I'm going to be working on this. And I'm going to be training people on how to do it. So when I'm gone, they're going to be continuing to work on it. And that's what it's going to take to actually change this particular problem. Uh, I'd like to double down on what uh, Sarah said about social capital. Um, one of the things I found in, in scaling Pitch Black was, uh, it was it was really cool to have an event and, and really cool to see the pitches. But the secret sauce is really the connections that happen at the event, and so as we scale and go to other cities, we actually take founders from Portland or from Seattle and, and we go and have them pitch in other cities so that they can grow their social capital and they can make the connections needed so that they can have a third location, a fifth location, do a new product launch. And um, that's been so much more uh, impactful than uh, the, the thousands of dollars that we, we give away uh, to, the, to the winners. And that's one of the things that, that keeps us moving and, and expanding into new cities is this opportunity to bridge these, these, these communities and also uh, allow people in the dominant culture ecosystem to see the breadth of talent that already exists in their town. It's not something that we need to start building youth today, but there's already people that have been building amazing companies right here uh, in their own cities. And imagine if they were able to connect with the social capital and the influence um, of these other networks, uh, the, the sky's the limit. I'm having like 10 conversations in my head. I'm like, yeah, that thing and that time. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly right. And so then I'm like, oh yeah, it's my time to speak. Okay, um, Lisa, focus. Okay, uh, so a couple of things. <laughs> you know, I believe that if you move from your heart, I believe that, 
So, and this is very challenging for a person who moves often from her head. I'm that type personality that is like in that way. But I believe you make change when something moves you in here that gets so close and proximate to where you can see yourself. And often we don't get moved because we're not in proximity to the issues. You're so far removed from those who are, who are directly impacted by the things we're talking about. So it feels very statistical and theoretical and like you can imagine it. You're like, yeah, there's a tent right outside here. So I can imagine these conditions exist, but it's not in your dinner table. It's not in everyday conversations. You're not, imag you're not talking to your children about it. You don't have to, you don't have to factor it in your day-to-day -day life. And so I wanna offer it before I get into a broader abundance comment is that this conversation is not about you having a benevolent act. That's one of my issues I have with like philanthropy and charity. Like you're doing a favor for others. Like you're doing them a favor, so be grateful for whatever I do because of my benevolence. No, we are bound. We, if you don't believe we're bound, if you don't understand we're bound, then there's nothing that you can do that will effect change because you've, you're disconnected from knowing that this investment is actually an investment in yourself, in your humanity, in our world, in our environment. So this is not some charitable act. So when you walk away from here, again, that binary of like good and bad, I am good and bad, I am doing good versus bad, I am the, let that go. We've been socialized. I feel a little Carter G. Woodson happening. I'm like the miseducation. He was talking about the miseducation of the Negro. I feel like it's been the miseducation of our humanity and understanding how we exist and how we've come to exist and our relationship to each other. And so we can get to tactical stuff, but if you don't move from your heart, if you don't get to that anything that you do actually makes you better and our lives better, then it's all transactional. We're not having any transformational change. And until we're moving from a place of transformational change, then this can be standard deviation outputs, where we will put some point something equations and do a couple of arcs and then pass the baton to someone else's problem, because those of you who are in privilege and power will just continue to pass down the assets of that appreciating and compounding asset to those who already have access to it. It's not real change. And so I, I want, I'll, I'll be like, frame, remember heart, okay, tactics on how it shows up because it's all important when you go through the rest of this day thinking about climate change, thinking about the impacts of Native Americans, it, it always feels like it's someone other than you. But when you connect you and those you love to it and realize that their future is bound by the conditions of others, we can become much more strategic and accelerate. I think we're accelerating, right? We're supposed to be, become exponential in this moment. Get more intentional about what's the level of investments required for the acceleration. But you won't ever accelerate, but marginally. And with this understanding of standard deviation, that can just shift right back to the same status quo, right? Until you feel bound to that change. If you're enjoying this conversation and it piques your interest to hear inspiring stories from entrepreneurial women of color, 
check out the World Changing Women podcast by the team at Conscious Company Media. They have interviews with entrepreneurs like Raha Wright of Shea Yuleen Shea Butter, Yves Carmont Perus, who founded Crayol Essence, and Tara Nicole Nelson of MyFitnessPal that tell the stories behind these great companies. Search World Changing Women podcast wherever you listen to subscribe. I guess one thing I'd throw it out is um, people need to start somewhere. Uh, and you can't be afraid to make mistakes. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you something. If, if you, the person who's at a foundation, you, the investor, you, the person who's working on your board for family office or whatever else, is uh, afraid of being uncomfortable in a situation like, eh, we can make this investment, but, you know, maybe we'll lose 50 basis points off the top. Imagine how hard it is for an entrepreneur to be out there trying to actually get capital, to get turned away from 75 capital sources, and, and to have to internalize that probably the reason that their company is not successful is because of something that they had no control over. It wasn't the balance sheet, it wasn't their collateral, it was the color of their skin, it was what they were born into. So I think in order to do this work, you have to be uncomfortable. And you have to get over that, um, that idea that I'm going to find that thing that's perfect to do. You have to do something, and you have to have your eyes open, and you have to evaluate what it is that you do. Because everything you do will have an unintended consequence, and then you have to be open to, yeah, I made a mistake, and I can solve that problem, or I can lean into that next thing. Because the system is set up in such a way that it is going to disadvantage the populations of people that have always been disadvantaged. So one thing isn't going to change that, because the system will adapt to it, so you, the person who really wants to change this or think about it, you have to be all in on it. You have to be thinking about what is the next thing that's going to come up that's going like, to complicate this. I'll give an example from my work. Um, we were keenly interested in trying to um, step into this growth capital space um, for people of color. There's a micro lender in town who has done a really good job of um, intentionally getting this population of people. They wanted to do 7A loans. Uh, that's an SBA product. Um, so we gave them a fair amount of money um, to actually create a specific loan product that was going to be larger loans to the people who have been successful through their programming and would be able to then access the 7A program. Um, a year into the investment, the, um, the fund manager came back to us and said, um, well, the people re we really want to serve, like I had about 25 people on my list, 23 of them got cut off the list by the SBA. So even though I had the best of intentions to try to serve those populations, I didn't recognize the bias in the system of the SBA itself that was going to prevent these people from getting capital. So even though I had the best of intentions, sort of this benevolent intent, um, I have to recognize that I made a mistake and, both, and the fund manager made a mistake and we weren't able to connect my capital to those particular people. So I have to go back to my board and I have to say we made a mistake Now let's try this again. Maybe we'll just not use the 7A program because we, we really need to get to the people that need this money rather than just being afraid of making mistakes. I will make mistakes every day along the way so long as I'm falling forward and I'm able to do this better. In, in, in Sayer's example, I want to pull this out. He didn't say I made a mistake in focusing on the 23, right? He, he's the, the tactic, right? And he was going back to the board to say, oh, they didn't work. Let's figure out a new group. No, it's like, let's figure out the new strategy because he's clear on what it, the change that he's seeking to make. And so I, I just want to lift that, that piece out of the story. This mistake wasn't in the group. It's the reality of the, the intricacies of where the challenges are. So arm up, 
and be ready to come back three, four. Has anyone seen this show, Travelers? The, this net, I got totally sucked in, like binge. They, oh, they did, see, this is how far back. I don't watch television, I do a lot of stuff, and then all of a sudden I'll go into like this binging. And Travelers has been my late night binging. And there was one episode where they had to come back nine times to save them, but they died nine times before. I don't know, so those who, of you who raised your hand, who was like, I know what you're talking about, Lisa. Okay, great. So <laughs> there was this one, they had but this idea, it made me think about this conversation, because they had to keep trying over and over again and failing forward over and over again until they actually got through to accomplishing the objective. So when you're clear about what the objective is, you don't get distracted by not achieving it the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth time. You just keep going back at it. And so I went that in his story it came out. The, the only thing I would add to that is um, we focus primarily on working with entrepreneurs. And one of the realities of being an entrepreneur is you don't know what you don't know, right? I, I always say the, the curve of being an, a founder is you, you know enough to be to say yes to something, but not quite enough to where you'd say no, right? And, and, and so we live in a day and age where people wanna make apps and they wanna have these things where if you have a question, you can go to the app, you can go to the directory. But as a founder, I don't know when I have a problem most of the time. And that's why uh, social capital and being able to interact with other folks is such a key part because maybe I don't know I have a problem, but I talking to Lisa and Lisa goes, oh man, I'm so glad I found out what my product, you know, my margins were on my product because my price of goods was just way high. And I'm like, oh, oh, yo, me too. Oh, tell me more about that. Um, as opposed to, you know, people think if I can just get a loan or if I can just get a line of credit, it prolongs the inevitable. But that social capital piece is, is really so important. Um, for this population specifically. We wanted to give you guys some time to answer questions, so uh, we're going to open it up. I'm Rosalie Cates. I'm with Philanthropy Northwest and the Giving Practice. I really like the focus on SBA 7As because it's such a common wealth building thing to start with an SBA loan. And uh, it's interesting to me that we're talking so much about social capital, but I've never seen anybody get a 7A without 150% collateral, which comes to assets, which comes to the well-documented disparity of assets in the black community. And so I love trust and social capital, and I get that. What about those assets? Thank you. So as the uh, recovering banker, I'll, I'll chime in on that one. Um, here's a little secret. Bankers really don't like using SBA programs. Uh, they're more expensive, and they bring in a third party that you cannot control whatsoever. So you can have a, an amazing relationship happening while you're working with Lisa on your loan, and then the second you, you choose that program, now you have a third party who may say, um, you know, this paperwork was off or we're gonna require this. <clears throat> and they're actually not doing a loan, they're just doing a guarantee. So it's still your money. SBA is not giving any money in the transaction whatsoever. Uh, one of the things I like to talk about is what would it look like if we were to approach access to capital without knowing what the five C's are, right? How would we look at lending to businesses? Because ultimately what it comes down to is how sure am I that the business owner is going to be able to pay me back if I loan them money today, right? And the biggest way I should be able to know that is if they have sales. So what if we pegged um, a, a loan program to how someone does on a Kickstarter campaign or an Indiegogo campaign where, you know, if Lisa goes and has a, a 50,000, a successful Kickstarter campaign and raises $50,000 on there and pre-sells some units of her product, Maybe I come in and say, okay, that equates to a $15,000 loan from us, 
and we start that relationship. But unfortunately, you know, lending in the United States really hasn't changed much in the last hundred years. And so we're trying to go and innovate, but keeping the, the tactics the way they've always have been. And so we talk about those five C's and, and everything's very different than it was before. I think the, the one thing I would add to that, this is where the social capital can show up. But tell me your name again. Rosalie. Rosalie, this is where the social capital can come. And I give a personal example. So when one of my enterprises um, was funded by an individual family, like individuals who knew about our intent, our work, our philosophy, what we're trying to do. And because we had, I knew them, they invested, like invested in me and not, not the enterprise. Now they were in a place to be able to do that. And so it created an asset that I did not have in my personal balance sheet at the time, right? And that was because of relational that was relational, and it wasn't, it wasn't um, driven by the intended return on it. And so there are so many different ways that we as individuals, and I'm with Stephen, and I'm like, I, I'm here, I'm, I'm having, like, you can't dismantle the master's health use and master's tools running in my head right now, because if we are trying to keep, the, see how we just slightly tweak, <laughs> like, let's slightly tweak to have transformative change. Won't work. So some of the tools that are so latent in bias won't work. <laughs> so we're going to have to innovate. And we can't bear the burden of the innovation on those who are seeking to get the investments either. Like, go figure out how to make me figure out how to best serve you. That happens in philanthropy a lot. Go figure it out and then measure it. And tell me how you're impacting. Okay. But that was, a, that was actually a social capital conversion to an asset based on a relationship. And the more we are in proximity with Stephen and the, the founders that, that Stephen works with and talks with, the more we have conversations, the more you have people at your dinner table to know what their ambitions are, the more you build relationships, the more likelihood the transference of assets can happen. Hi, I'm Leslie Christian. Um, to me, one of the master's tools is venture capital. And I'm really curious how Sayer, your foundation, addresses the problem that in venture capital, the, the spoils go all, almost all to the investors. And it's arguably perpetuating or actually aggravating the whole disparity of wealth. So are we supposed to use the master's tools or are we supposed to find something alternative? I don't mean supposed to, but you know what I mean. Well, yeah, I mean, we invest in venture capital, but we're a globally benevolent organization. So um, I think that that's a good tool, right? No, I mean, I, I'm, I'm being cynical about it. I think the, the reality is like, um, for this is a, maybe an Oregon-centric uh, example, but maybe I think it's broadly in the Northwest, um, we've sort of veered towards um, smaller funds with, um, with an eye toward venture capital. And in the, to fill in what should have been the banks doing their work. Um, so a lot of companies that ended up taking venture capital uh, backing and selling out ownership when they really needed um, uh, like a simple line of credit or something like that. But because in the absence of being able to get a line of credit, they give up ownership. Um, we have an example in town of a, of a founder who built a marvelous little business 
um, and it's probably worth $20, 25000000 million at the time that she's going to exit, um, she's maybe going to get a million dollars out of it because she had to take so much money in order to scale the business up because she was locked out of the traditional um, the, the traditional lending environment. Um, this is just one of those things. Like, you know, at the end of the day, we own what we own. So I'm not the CIO of the whole business, but if our CIO was here, she would say, um, well, she has a lot of different ways of approaching it, but um, she would say, you know, you got to plug your nose and you got to do this because at the end of the day, we have a job to do. So I do work on the investment side of the house. We do make investments. We make investments in a lot of things that um, that would make you blush, right? Make me blush having to describe them. Um, but it's the business and it's the way the business has always been. We're going to do it better over time. Uh, but one of the problems that you have when you think about impact investing broadly, and this is just for the people who are trying to contemplate it now, is there's about a million different switches you could focus on. You could focus on climate change. You could focus on people of color. You could focus on regional investing. You could focus on um, liberty. You could focus on democracy, whatever you want to focus on. If you focus on all of them, you will get to the place where you can't make any investments at all. You paint yourself into a corner and there's nothing there. Um, so on our global portfolio, we've basically taken the approach that we're interested in female managers. We're interested in people of color who are um, managing money. They could be at giant, you know, KKR style uh, venture capital companies, but we're going to focus on those individuals and we're going to know them over time and follow them. So they'll spin out, we'll continue to invest with them. Um, that's about all we can do from the global impact investing framework um, for our CIO, because she's also managing a portfolio with top decile returns. So we have a spectacular portfolio and we've been able to do that. If we did, if we took on 10 things, we would not have that. We simply don't have enough people to be able to do that. I, I think it's also to, to, it's important to put it in perspective. So um, the venture capital is really not getting any bigger. If you look at the size of venture capital over the last 50 years, um, crowdfunding is actually larger in the United States now than venture capital. Um, what is true is venture capital has become extremely sexy, uh, and, and it's it's what gets people into fast company. No, no one's getting an, an article written about them for for bootstrapping or getting the the fifty thousand dollar seven A loan done. But if they race around from angels, you know that might get them an article. And so one of the the problems on the ground working with founders is. I spend a lot of time talking founders out of going after equity because they they you know believe they need that 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 Cub Scout badge to authenticate them being a founder as opposed to no it's it's just one of the many tools and it's a really really myopic tool so I really see it as as my job and other folks see it as you know that's one tool here are the other things that you can do here are the things that go along with that and generally when I explain how venture returns work Founders are like, well, I don't want to sell my company in four to six years. That's crazy. Well, that's not going to be the tool. Let's talk about some other tools, right? But unfortunately, the, the chasm is so big that you have founders making the decision between a really, really, really bad idea and just a really bad idea. And when you go and you, you scrap it up afterwards, it's like, man, if there was some multi-generational wealth there, if someone had a friends and family raise, they could have avoided that or they just didn't know the terms right so you've got founders going up and giving away half of their half of their company for a hundred thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars because they don't they don't know any better and they feel like they're painted into a box and so I, I don't see it as the venture world's getting bigger and bigger and bigger it's becoming sexier and sexier it sounds like but it's really not getting any bigger and bigger and so how do we create more tools outside of that 
and, and get banks also to find new unique ways to get to the outcomes and experiences that we're talking about up here. It's also incumbent upon all of us to um, think about new products. I mean, I think the, the past 10 years in the Northwest, we have focused a lot on venture capital because there was very little venture capital and that was one of the problems that we saw. Companies leaving because they couldn't get venture financing. Um, we've probably over allocated to that space um, and we've created a lot of fee hustles for small fund managers who are um, getting being paid exorbitant amount of fees percentage-wise to do this sort of early stage work. Um, I think over the next 10 years, I'm solidly focused on debt funds, royalty-based financing, other ways of thinking about not taking an ownership stake in a company, but helping scale companies up with an acknowledgement that like microfinance is way over here, traditional banks are way over here, and there's this giant chasm in the middle that we have to fill with things. So to me, that's a market opportunity for us to think about what are the what are the alternative lending products that we can put into that space, because all the while we're competing against the internet. So you can go to Cabbage right now, and within 48 hours, you can get a $10,000 revenue-based loan that pulls straight out of the GL system, and that will strangle your company and eventually kill it. So we, all of us collectively who want to do something in this space, have to fight against usury. We have to fight against convenience. We have to fight against um, miseducation in this space. And venture capital is probably you know, an obvious outlier out there, but there's a huge financial system that is generating these these outputs beyond venture capital as well. Um, I had a question for you, uh, Mr. Jones. Can you hear me? Okay, cool. Um, so what I wanted to ask is, bias aside, um, what I often find is that when I pitch ideas, I come runner-up in part due to size bias because the investor will tell me, compared to my counterpart who's often white and has had a head start, their company is bigger. And even though with the data argument, I show that each of my staff or my product is outperforming and is efficient, they'll say, thank you, there was nothing wrong with your pitch, but we don't find you bankable. And I feel like you sit on the other side of that table. So what factors do you find compelling that allow you to look past the size bias and invest in something? Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll answer you directly. Um, I, I wish I was in the seat of being able to actually make selections about investors, but where I sit and where the trust sits is we manage managers. We don't manage particular investments. And the tool that I have is really blunt and being blunt. I can tell a fund manager that I simply don't like the, the types of investments that they've made. And the only tool I really have is whether or not we're going to invest in them in the next fund or not, and actively actively engaging. I think um, Stephen has some background in venture capital itself, um, but that's something we need to unpack. And um, it's, it's nice to hear that um, a lot of people are challenging the idea that you have to sell your company out in order to scale up, because um, there's a place for that tool, but it certainly isn't the end all for everything. I think particularly here in the Northwest, um, we have a maturing investor ecosystem. And time and time again, I see a lot of founders that'll go and pitch investors that know nothing about their vertical. And so they get things like lifestyle business or bankable instead of maybe saying, hey, I don't know anything about this vertical. This is just this is not my lane at all. And so, you know, I've I've been a big proponent of of there being accelerators actually for investors, so that investors can be more on par 
with the founders. And so it's not a bring me a rock, not that rock. Bring me a rock. Because there, there's a lot of maturing that needs to happen. Because the way someone becomes an investor is somehow they, they have some sort of liquidation event or family money. But there's no like qualifications or school that you have to go through to be an investor. Um, and conversely, it, you know, them investing in you has nothing to do with the viability and success of your business, right? So take the, take the feedback, keep pushing, um, but make sure when you are sitting down with an investor, it's someone you know can add value to the business beyond writing a check. So that was, uh, that was it. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's episode of Money and Meaning. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please share it with a friend as we try to expand the audience for these important discussions. If you want to learn more about closing the racial wealth gap, these great speakers shared some resources with us, which we'll publish on our blog at socialcapitalmarkets.net. In Atlanta, on June 12th and 13th, we'll be hosting an event called Spectrum, with Conscious Company Media and the Kellogg Foundation that will explore some of these same topics of access and inclusion. If you have any feedback for us or would like to shoot us a question, you can reach us at moneyandmeaningpodcast at gmail.com. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are heard. To learn more, check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at SoCapMarkets. Thanks for listening.